I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimists. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. And as a nonprofit organization, it's donations from our listeners that enable us to educate and empower people to get involved in climate action. So whether you're a longtime listener or you just discovered us and you like what you hear, consider a donation. Donating is easy. Just head over to our website, climateoptimist.co and click the donate button. And while you're there, take a moment to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's an easy read filled with facts and climate solutions and ways each of us can get involved. Yeah, it's an easy sign up and definitely gets into more depth on some of the stuff we talk about here. So worthwhile for sure. Well, here at this podcast, we try to strike a balance between speaking to the seriousness of the climate crisis and highlighting the progress that's being made to solve it. And, you know, the truth is it's kind of a fine line to walk at times. We aren't doing near enough, uh, but yet, you know, there's still time to realize a better future. Drought is a topic that really illustrates that, that challenge of, of striking a balance. There's mm-hmm. many areas of the world that are facing an increased risk of drought and, you know, it's projected to get worse. At the same time, this doesn't mean we should be throwing in the towel. Yeah. On the contrary, there are many things that we can do to adapt. And if we can reduce our emissions more rapidly, it's going to make a massive difference on the impacts that we'll face in the future. So today we're going to be exploring the topic of drought, what we're up against, what we can do to respond, and how each of us can be part of the solution. Before we dive into the details of drought with today's guest, let's talk about today's reason for hope, because after all, it's the hope that fuels the action that we need to solve climate change. Yeah, so two hopeful items that we found this week. Uh, The first took place at the Global Climate Conference that, as we speak, is underway in Dubai. Yes, a strange place to have a climate conference, but um, (laughs) there was finally an agreement to move forward with this thing called the Loss and Damage Fund. And the concept, in essence, is, you know, developed nations are far and away the ones responsible for climate change and vulnerable nations who've done very little to, you know, in terms of emissions are facing the real impacts. And so this idea of this fund is to help, you know, these vulnerable nations cope with the climate disasters that are already taking place. There still needs to be pledges in terms of funding. So, you know, now that the fund is being kind of, they call it operationalized, people need to step up and write checks. But this is a very positive first step because it was something that didn't look like it was possible even a couple of years ago. I guess the other item uh, is on a very different and maybe a, uh, a much lighter note, and that is that the Tesla Cybertruck, after five years in development, has finally been uh, released for sale and first deliveries have been made to customers. I think this is a, sort of an important one, especially in the US market where the Ford F-150 is you know, the biggest selling vehicle in, in the entire US, and the Cybertruck is going to go head-to-head against that vehicle um, and hopefully you know, halve the CO2 emissions associated with running such large, uh, <clears throat> arguably unnecessary for many people, uh, vehicles. Yeah, I think it's exciting too. Um, I won't be buying a Cybertruck, but I think <laughs> to your point, Thomas, the reality is there's still a lot of people in this world that have been, that are convinced they need a truck. And so let's get those folks moved over to electric first. And I think the other reason this is positive is because at the end of the day, it just continues to 
light a fire under the major auto manufacturers to step up their efforts because they don't want to be left behind. So yeah, positive news. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's been so interesting following Tesla, just starting with, you know, seeing a few on the road to nowadays where if you go to California, you see six every time you walk around. Um, I'm really excited to see how the truck does with its, as you said, well, Thomas, polarizing design. (laughs) So pivoting to today's topic, and to today's guest, uh, Michelle Thiem is Deputy Director of Freshwater for World Wildlife Fund in the U.S. and supports World Wildlife Fund's efforts to conserve freshwater ecosystems and manage river basins to support biodiversity and human livelihoods. She has 25 years of experience in freshwater and spatial planning and has written over 30 scientific publications. She brings the latest in science and academia to applied river basin policy management, and conservation projects. Michelle holds a BS in biology from University of Virginia and a master's in fisheries science from University of Arizona. Very qualified to speak on our topic today, so excited to have her on. Michelle, welcome to Climate Optimists. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. So we'll start you off with a basic question we do all our guests. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? Yeah, um, hard question these days. Um, (laughs) But what I would, I guess what makes me most hopeful is the energy and activism that I see from like all aspects of youth, elderly, in between. My... 80-plus-year-old mother, for example. She's a real inspiration to me. She, in her retirement, has taken on a second voluntary career where she's working to influence county and state-level policy and action on climate change. So I find that really inspiring. Yeah. And then, you know, um, another source of hope are the many projects and initiatives that WWF and colleagues and partners are taking on around the world on on the ground in basins. An example would be the recently funded Green Climate Fund project in Pakistan focused on uh, flood prevention and mitigation. The project's called Recharge Pakistan, and the team is going to be putting in restoration of riparian forests and other actions like improving connection to river flows of river flows to groundwater as complements to existing gray infrastructure to help mitigate against the impacts of of floods. Yeah, that's great. Well, and I guess at WWF, you guys are doing so much, you probably have this sort of nice cross section where you can see what works in one place and have lessons learned that that might be able to apply, you know, elsewhere. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot going on in this space in WIF and beyond. There are a lot of groups that are leaders in really starting to implement working with nature to support adaptation of communities and the natural environment to a changing climate. And I think, you know, we're learning a lot as that gets trialed and tested in a wide variety of different environments. That's great. Well, and I, 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 sen- I feel your optimism too when it comes to, or your sense of hope when it comes to, you know, all the folks that are getting engaged. I think, honestly, it's probably my number one source of hope is that there's this 
growing community of people and with that more momentum for, you know, taking the actions that we need to, you know, on a more rapid scale. Well, let's let's get into the topic at hand. Uh, so how is climate change uh, impacting sort of the frequency and severity of droughts uh, within the within the U.S.? Well, just maybe starting first globally, we you know we're seeing the climate crisis really hit through water. Um, both droughts and floods are increasing in frequency and severity, and as climate change changes the patterns of weather and water around the world. We're seeing shortages and droughts in some locations and flooding happening in others, and sometimes both in the same place um, at different times. And it's not only the amount of water, it's the timing of when this water arrives that is also changing. And this can have really critical impacts on agricultural systems as well as natural systems um, because, you know, seasonal changes are what drive the agricultural production and also what drive natural systems in terms of, for example, in freshwaters, when the spring flood pulse comes is often what signals for fish to migrate upstream. And, you know, unfortunately, this is impacting all of us. We're seeing these climate extremes destroying or degrading infrastructure ecosystems. We're seeing damage to people's health, their well-being, their livelihoods, even loss of life. And one estimate that these changes have caused $4.3 trillion in economic losses to date. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of the global picture. Shifting a bit to the U.S., um, the impacts are similarly being felt through floods and droughts. The Southwest U.S., for example, has been experiencing a historic mega drought in recent years. And then we're seeing flooding in other parts. Just this year, we've seen damaging floods in New York City, Philadelphia, Vermont, and so on. And we expect that these impacts are going to get worse. Um, for example, in the Rio Grande in Colorado and New Mexico, the models there anticipate temperatures that are going to be about five and a half Fahrenheit warmer by 2050 with variable changes in precipitation. And the climate scientists are predicting that that would mean the loss of a fourth of what's currently left in the river by 2050 in the Rio Grande in New Mexico. Wow. That's massive. And that was kind of my question, you know, following question was sort of how is this changing or anticipated to change kind of our freshwater supplies, knowing especially in like the, the American West, um, you know, we rely a lot more on, you know, snowpack and, and stored water for, you know, agriculture and human needs. Yeah. I think, you know, sometimes there's this idea that water comes from the tap and it's going to be endlessly there and available for us when <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the reality is that when you do the calculations, less than 1% of water on earth is actually usable and fresh. So it's a, a really finite resource already. And then with climate change, it's really dangerously affecting the timing and availability of that supply. So it sounds like, you know, obviously 
problematic on a lot of levels, but it sounds like the there's sort of a twofold problem. One is that you know some areas are maybe not getting the moisture that they are used to, but even when moisture does arrive, it might not be arriving at the ideal time, which is problematic for certainly growing food, you know, obviously for migrating fish, et cetera. Yes, exactly. So, you know, as I'm thinking about this and as somebody who lives on the West Coast of the U.S., I'm, you know, thinking specifically about like the Colorado River and and the Southwest. How, you know, can you give some examples sort of how these reductions in water um, sort of translate or manifest on the ground when it comes to, to agriculture and certainly things like urban growth? Yeah. So, yeah, we know we know that global food production could decline by more than 2% by 2050 due to heat stress and water shortages. I think the reality is going to be that where we grow crops, which crops we grow, and when will we grow them is going to need to change in some locations to be able to adapt to those changing climate conditions. And we're also seeing this on the urban front that many cities in the Southwest U.S., elsewhere, are already facing severe water stress and having to take action. You may be familiar with the case outside of in a, a suburb of Phoenix where the Maricopa County has basically had to put limits on housing development due to lack of water supply for additional growth. There just isn't enough water resources there to allow for more people to be living there. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and maybe that's sort of the next important question is sort of like, how do we, how do we stretch our, you know, freshwater supply further, knowing that it's, it was already finite, there's going to be less of it, you know, what can be done to, to get the most out of it? Yeah. And, you know, there's no silver bullet solutions here, right? The, right. <laughs> the particular actions that need to be taken will obviously need to be tailored to the specific basin and conditions there and whether they're seeing more floods or droughts or um, timing of rainfall or whatever the changes are and um, what tools that particular community has to adapt. That being said, there there is a lot more that we can be doing than what we're currently doing. And for me, one of the first line interventions is really going back to basics of integrated water resources management. So, you know, just like you do with your household budget, <laughs> evaluating the water budget within a particular basin where you are making sure that we're living within our means. I mean, it's, it is surprisingly common that this is not the norm. Uh, there was a excellent investigative piece that came out in the New York Times recently analyzing the depletion of U.S. groundwater sources, and they showed that over half of monitor, monitored sites in the U.S. had water being taken out faster than it was being replenished. So there's a real need for governments to take action to make sure that we're permitting and allocation is in line with what resources we have that we recognize that there are natural limits on this water supply and that we stay within them. And, you know, it's not just governments, right? We are, we are all the people part of the government. So, uh, of course, individual citizens have a role to play in raising up their voices 
And I would say corporations and businesses also have a role to play in supporting and advocating for those sustainable limits and having them fairly applied to all that are operating within a particular basin. Some other things that uh, are important are early warning systems for floods and droughts, forecasting and monitoring systems. These are all really important tools to help communities to be able to respond in time when these um, crises are happening. And I think the good news in the global perspective, at least, is that we're seeing that countries are ready to move forward with adaptation action. Some other ideas, WIF is a big advocate of working with nature to support adaptation. So for example, using wetlands, marshes, and swamps as solutions for providing water storage and purification. Restoring floodplains and wetlands can also support groundwater recharge. And where we can, to literally leave room for the river to provide a natural buffer for flood events. Stop building in floodplains. Um, finally, I'll just say WF recently has been supporting the Freshwater Challenge, which is a country-led initiative that's aiming to restore 300,000 kilometers of rivers and 350 million hectares of wetlands by 2030. That's exciting. So, you know, you, you mentioned sounds like Mother Nature has a really important role here to play. Obviously, you know, sounds like we need to start with doing a better job of accounting what we're using versus what's available, you know, making uh, adjustments there, but leveraging Mother Nature. For folks who may not know, and I'm sure you could speak to this, it, I know in some places rivers have become degraded and become more like sort of channels where you're, the water's just sort of passing through. And I'm guessing when you're talking about things like wetlands and letting the river spread out, that acts more like a, a sponge and maybe slows the water sort of moving out to the ocean. Yeah, exactly. And allows that water, when it gets channelized and it's moving so quickly across the landscape, it doesn't have the opportunity to sink down into the groundwater and to recharge those natural sources of water storage that we have available. So by allowing the river to take more of its natural course, reconnecting floodplains, it allows it to spread out and to flow down into the groundwater. Um, so that's one important function. Also, by leaving those natural floodplains or reconnecting them, they can act as a buffer for flood events. So really, it sounds like get back, get get out of the way, um, let Mother Nature do its thing. I'm wondering, are there places, you know, you're talking about this, you know, all this work focused on restoring. Are there places that um, are sort of good examples of kind of what what can be done in terms of you know, taking these sort of measures to both mitigate for floods and to help, you know, buffer droughts. Yeah, there are some good examples. One example comes from the Netherlands where they do have this room for the river program and they've reconnected the natural floodplain and allowed for that function of buffering against floods to, to help prevent loss of human built infrastructure. Uh, it's a that's a good example. In China, they have a initiative called Sponge Cities, which is also um, aiming to use natural wetlands to buffer against flood events. That's exciting, and I'm guessing you know 
we're talking about this and the and the benefits to people, but you know, I'm guessing there's huge benefits too to to sort of the natural world to you know bring back more wetlands. Yeah, definitely. We we've lost well by some estimates we've lost over 50% of natural wetlands for freshwater species overall. WWF has a Living Planet Index that we've been keeping track of for about since 1970, and on average, freshwater species populations have declined by about 83% globally. Wow. So um, everything that we can do to help restore those systems and allow for some of the natural functions to come back will inevitably support the biodiversity as well. Right. So, you know, as we're talking about this, obviously the subject of droughts and floods is a heavy topic, um, but, you know, important to be aware of, of what we're facing and, and to your point, the adaptations that need to take place. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what sort of difference, you know, as we look forward, right, we're already seeing floods and droughts. What sort of difference, though, will it make in terms of what we see in impacts by kind of reducing our emissions more rapidly and quickly versus kind of heading along more of a business as usual uh, approach? Yeah, great question. So it's clear that a rapid transition to renewable energy is going to significantly be better for both nature and people than a higher emission fossil fuel dominated energy system. WWF has been part of a recent study that looked at this and it estimated that Business as usual scenario would lead to temperature increases to 3.2 degrees Celsius higher by the end of the century, which would result in four times more species lost and up to three times higher risk of shifts in different ecosystems on land, as well as significantly increased uh, loss of vegetation, permafrost, degradation, water scarcity, soil erosion, and wildfire risk due to climate change impacts. So definitely going down the low emission scenario is going to be critical for mitigating a wide range of impacts, including floods and droughts. Yeah, it seems like a critical point to make because I know, you know, it can be hard to hear about these impacts or see them firsthand, but, you know, that there is still, you know, if you want to look at it, sort of this, there's there's still hope, right? And we can make a huge difference. In other words, it's not too late to really affect the trajectory of where we're headed in the future. Totally. Totally agree. So I guess kind of looking to the future and for folks who, um, you know, want an outlet to be able to get involved, you know, kind of back to our, our what gives you hope mm-hmm. in the beginning. <laughs> um, how can we as individuals kind of help be part of the solution when it comes to adapting to, you know, these increasingly sort of severe droughts and, and floods for that matter? Yeah, great question. I um, I think it goes back to what you just said a, a minute ago. I mean, first line for me is getting involved uh, in your community, encouraging action on climate change. And then on the, the floods and droughts part, you know, supporting local river basin organizations and efforts that they're doing to restore rivers and wetlands supporting the community leaders or the policies that are being advanced that advocate for sustainable water resources management, getting those leaders 
put into office. In your home, there's also things you can do like water-efficient plumbing and fixtures in your bathrooms and sinks. And one that I do in my yard or try to is planting native. They're generally more adapted to the local water conditions and certainly help with supporting the local wildlife and insects. So Michelle, as we're talking about this, it sounds like there are plenty of places to get involved, everything from sort of individual actions at your home to getting involved in policy. And I'm wondering if if folks want to learn sort of more about, you know, what we need to sort of do to better adapt our freshwater systems. Are there, you know, resources that that you'd recommend checking out? Yeah, there's there's a lot of resources out there. And um, I I would love to point folks to multiple resources, but I'll just mention uh, the one that is closest to my heart and knowledge is the WWF website on our freshwater initiatives. And I'm happy to provide you with a website for that, that you can point folks to. Great. Yeah, we can definitely put it in the show notes. So Michelle, as we're, we're kind of wrapping up here, wanted to ask you, um, are there, you know, how is sort of government already responding in the U.S.? Are we seeing an awareness of the problem, you know, any progress being made in terms of you know, helping invest in the things that we need to be able to adapt? Yeah, so we had some good news this week. The um, government announced that they're going to be investing $51 million in uh, the America Agenda for Water Resources and Ecosystem Health. And this is really about helping communities expand uh, their work on drought and being prepared to respond to drought and water resources management writ large. So it's in line with what we were talking about earlier of what is needed at this moment in time in terms of um, water conservation, water management and restoration that will help provide uh, significant benefits to ecosystems and humans during this time of facing what's happening with our changing climate and just water resources issues writ large. So that was great news. And we're particularly happy that there's going to be a portion of that that's allocated to the Rio Grande, which uh, desperately needs that type of support for on the ground work around water resources and ecosystem health. Well, that's good to hear. And I'm sure not all that we need, but it's great to know that, you know, that's significant dollars that are starting to flow and, and, you know, helping ramp up this important work. Yeah. It's, you know, a step in the right direction. <laughs> well, Michelle, uh, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us about, you know, a heavy topic, but an important one and, and, you know, what we can do, you know, as individuals to sort of be part of the solution. And, and of course, for all the work that you're doing there at WWF. Thank you so much, Jason, for your time and the work that you do to get the word out about uh, climate change and how to address it, remain optimistic in the face of it. Not always easy, but definitely important. Totally. So, Thomas, Flora, what did you uh, what did you guys take away from the the talk with uh, Michelle. Oof, well, I feel like we were definitely due for our talk on drought, watching the effects everywhere. It's it's pretty hard hitting. 
I feel like the whole time I was listening, I was thinking a bit about the situation with water where I am now in the Canary Islands. Uh, there's no fresh water here. And so everything that we're getting is desalinated or imported. Um, and it feels like wow. kind of that, that potential future, right? If we don't figure out how to take care of our fresh water, yeah, and how to kind of fix our supply demand problem that we have now. It is this future where we're using really energy intensive processes to try to get something to drink or, you know, to use in agriculture. And I, I think it's 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 important to keep in mind that if we do end up in that situation, as they have in Australia too in certain cities, um, resorted to desalination that is hugely energy intensive and also emissions intensive. Yeah, it, it seems like desalinization is a necessary solution in certain places and you know, and can help maybe create relief where we're using natural water sources that could otherwise go elsewhere. But yeah, certainly, you know, makes me think about the fact that what we do now over the next, you know, 10, 20 years really does matter. You know, Michelle spoke to the fact that there really is a difference in terms of the likelihood of drought, severity of droughts that we face, you know, if we if we don't curb our emissions. And, you know, just to put it more in numbers, the IPCC in 2018 in their report talked about the difference between one and a half degrees Celsius of warming and two degrees Celsius of warming, you know, means that half as many people are exposed to water stress. In other words, it has huge implications for water stress and, and drought worldwide. According to Carbon Brief, they did some, you know, calcs focused on the length of drought versus the rate of warming. And, you know, one and a half degrees worth of warming globally, you're looking at, you know, two months of average length of drought. But if you go to two degrees, that jumps to four months, and you go to three degrees, that jumps to 10 months. So we're going to be facing drought regardless, but it, you know, what we do between you know, now and 2030 and 2040 really is impactful in terms of you know, helping us in the long run. And I think with that, you know, let's get to maybe the, the other good news or you know, silver lining and all this, which is that there are a lot of solutions out there. Yeah, I, I think while we have many solutions that often be developed in, in countries or regions of the world where historically they've already had um, significant drought issues in the past, which of course are, are going to continue to uh, get worse if we don't get in front of this whole climate change issue. Um, it's also important to keep in mind that we, we don't go to continue to use these solutions to increase agricultural production and productivity in normal years and then we get to those drought years and things are even worse because we've built up this dependence upon that technology. But yeah, I guess if you'd like to step into things that can be done, um, this can be done either at a community level or even at an individual level. And I mean, to start with in Australia, something that I, I rarely saw when I was living in the US was just starting by capturing rainwater on roofs. It's very common, even in cities here in Australia, to see people with rainwater tanks that they at least use for you know, flushing toilets or for garden water, um, if not drinking. It's not hard to go and then put this through a carbon filter to remove not only particulates and microbes, but also any chemicals from that water. Yeah, that's a great point, Thomas. I mean, the, the dependence that we have on irrigation is is almost absurd. You know, anything from our, our lawns where we're using 
water that very easily could be rainwater and, you know, non-native plants a lot of the time to much bigger things, you know, like agriculture in general. I was reading up some of the stats on it and it's wild. Irrigated agriculture accounts for 40% of all the food produced worldwide. So yeah, with the way that freshwater um, is getting hit by drought, it's it's pretty staggering to think of the the food insecurity that could follow that. Yeah, and with regard to agricultural water, another thing that happens in Australia quite regularly um, is the utilization of both sewer water and grey water from households. They put it through a system that is known as an cycle, but it's basically uh, a, a mini uh, water processing plant that you can have on your own property that then allows you to use what is essentially like clean water at the end of the process for irrigation of your lawns, garden, etc. Um, and then they also exist at a larger community scale um, where they're running secondary lines throughout these communities to bring that recycled water back um, so they don't become so dependent on adding new water to the system. Wow. No, that's great. And I am curious, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but What's it look like on the energy side of that? Is that also an energy intensive process or is this is something that should be implemented way more places? Not massively, right? Because it's mainly the processing of this water is done mainly through aeration. Um, and because mm. you don't have large pressure heads that you're pushing uh, that air into that water because these ponds are not particularly deep um, or they're basically t- underground tanks that this is processed in the energy use is like relatively small, especially when compared to pumping water um, out of a river or a deep aquifer where you've got to lift that water up to the surface before it gets used. So I think what I'm hearing is, you know, there are many solutions to help stretch the water that we have to make sure it goes further. But I think you're both kind of hinted at an important point here, which is, that you know, when we are able to generate water savings, the the reality is our our ecosystems are are desperate to have it. You know, we've got the Colorado River that doesn't even make it right to the to the ocean, and so it's important, I think, that when we're talking about saving this water, that we can put as much of it as we can back into the rivers to restore those ecosystems. Oh, absolutely, and the Colorado River is is really a great example, Jason. Um, around 80% is getting funneled into agriculture with 55% being specifically for livestock feed. So there's a huge opportunity there to either eat less meat, to try to fix that system, to figure out alternatives. But yeah, definitely staggering numbers, but also a really great silver lining in the fact that there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah. I think as Michelle put it, the first step with obviously with all these systems is stepping back and figuring out how much water you actually have, right? And, and what you're going to have into the future and then making sure that what you're withdrawing is actually sustainable. And yeah, I agree. I mean, there's going to be tough decisions when it comes to saving water and, you know, it's going to be a lot of push and pull, but reducing the amount of livestock feed that we grow um, is, a, is a potential major way to save water in this context, given that, you know, as we talked about just in our last episode, animals are really you know, inefficient at converting food into, into meat. So, so yeah, cutting our consumption there, you know, putting stricter Mm -hmm. uh, restrictions on our, our cities in terms of what, you know, folks are able to use in terms of water, you know, not continuing to grow in places where you don't have the water. I think all that's going to be important. 
And I, I think another thing that we've touched on in the past and probably needs to be brought up again is reforestation and soil carbon. The fact that having large quantities of soil carbon allows you to have this moisture inertia in the ecosystem so that when it does rain and you get those recharge events, that it doesn't immediately run off, create floods. It just slows the whole system down, allows you to store that, allows that water then soak back into aquifers and we can focus on recharging these aquifers rather than having this sort of negative drawdown situation that we have today. Yeah, I mean, it it seems like at the end of the day, there's sort of three steps. It's like figure out your water water accounting, you know, implement the conservation measures that you have at your disposal, and then try to return as much of that water back to the natural ecosystem. Um, and maybe the fourth step, which, you know, obviously Michelle was talking about is leveraging mother nature and all that, right? Reconnecting floodplains, recharging mm-hmm. aquifers, you know, we can really stretch our supply of water much further if we're taking advantage of the tools that, that are, you know, mother nature has provided to us, which are going to help with creating more habitat for these, you know, freshwater species that have taken such a hit. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of good to be done. Um, and I know that us here at Climate Optimists are going to be looking forward to COP28, seeing how they handle the issue with a water agenda that's focused pretty specifically on freshwater ecosystems, what we've spoken to, aquifers, the Colorado River Basin, urban water resilience, and water resilient food systems. Yeah, that's a good that's a good segue to you know what can each of us do individually. And this week we've got a couple options for people to consider. The first is we want to press President Biden to do more in terms of aggressive climate action. Like we talked about in our last episode, we want you to email him and tell him that you know we're not doing enough to fight climate change, that the U.S. needs to fully align its targets with Paris, and they need to push other nations to do the same. The, uh, the second option I want to call on folks to consider is, you know, making a financial contribution to an organization like World Wildlife Fund, who is doing a lot of great work in the water space. You know, these NGOs uh, have a ton of expertise and are really helping bring together, you know, the coalitions that we need to be able to, to adapt and, you know, navigate our way in a future where we're going to have, you know, increased drought. And I don't know if you guys have any other suggestions before we I, I guess at a more physical level, um, look at getting a, a rainwater tank on your house if you have roof area that you can capture water off and you know ru- either use that for your garden or, or run that through a, a carbon filter for, for drinking. Always good suggestions, Thomas. So plenty to do. <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Um, pick your favorite <laughs> top two and, and get involved. Uh-huh. Well, that's all for this week's episode. As always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to be uh, taking a little holiday break here at Climate Optimus, but come back and join us in the new year on January 16th. In the meantime, happy holidays. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. Climate Optimus.